This is Python Bytes, Python headlines and news delivered directly to your earbuds. It's episode 11, recorded January 30th. This is Michael Kennedy. I'm here with Brian Aachen. Hey, Brian. Hey. Hey, you ready to talk about Python news and some cool things that we found this week? Uh, I am. I've got a little bit of a cold, but I think we can get through it. Yeah, I think I think you're going to be just fine. You sound totally good to me. So hang in there for, for a short bit while we, we talk about these things. So one of the things that makes Python fabulous is this so-called batteries included story, right? And sometimes that means standard libraries. Sometimes that means PyPI and the 97,000 packages there. And we're not done improving how we work with those, are we? Yeah, no, we're not. And uh, one of the things that came up uh, this recently, I think it was last week, is uh, Kenneth Reitz announced um, a new tool that he uh, he wrote, I guess, over the weekend uh, called uh, PipEnv, P-I-P-E-N-V. And we'll link to both his announcement and uh, a Reddit thread where people are talking about it. Because I, there are other projects out there that do the same thing, but this is or similar things. This is a, um, a way to uh, uh, bring pip and virtual environments together in the same tool chain and also pip file, which since I we talked about pip file, uh, I think it was last week or- Yeah, I think it was last time, yeah. Um, but I was, uh, I wanted to, uh, this is something I've just started using. I just started using this uh, pip env and so far the normal, even just the simple uh, environment of, um, uh, you know, setting up a new envi- a new directory for a project and setting up a virtual environment, um, this has helped me just make that faster with uh, just um, uh, pipenv install something and it creates a virtual environment. And I like the uh, uh, pipenv script, which um, or pipenv shell, which brings you into a shell terminal with in that environment. And, uh, and that works with my workflow pretty good. So supposedly it automatically finds your project home recursively by looking for a pip file. I still yeah. So one of the things that's really cool about that is it will create a virtual directory and one of these pip files. And if I'm reading this right, that means you don't have to activate your virtual environment to manage it right. in the particular shell, right? You just have to be in the subdirectory somewhere. And then your, your package management commands with pip env will apply to that virtual environment dedicated to that project. Yes. Which is really nice. Yeah. And in, in order to, well, the, the magic of virtual environments where it like switches out the different, um, a different Python for you and different, uh, paths that's, um, you still have to be, uh, activated with that, but that's where the, um, the pipm shell command comes in handy. But you also don't actually have to be in that environment, like you said, to, to update the pip file. And there's a run command where you can uh, not go into the, the environment with your shell, but just run a command within the environment. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. And it automatically adds basically to what would be the equivalence of your requirements.txt when you install a package and automatically removes that uh, requirement from the pip file, the the new replacement for requirements.txt. When you uninstall it and keeps your pip up to date, yeah, it's very cool. And you know, leave it leave it to Kenneth to say, uh, instead of watching television this weekend, I completely rewrote how you manage packages in Python. Yeah, the well, we still <laughs> depend on it's. We're not the entire tool chain for Python hasn't gone over to pip file yet. So um, we. St- I mean, I don't know. You, we still have to deal with requirements.txt, so I'm not sure how. I'm not, I'm still not sure how this fits together, but we'll 
I'll give it some more playing and we'll, we'll work on it. So yeah, sounds good. It definitely looks promising, and I'm I'm excited to start using it myself. You know, one of the the continuous messages that I think we are getting known for probably is our advocacy of everybody moving forward to Python three. Yes. You know, that's where all the core developers are focusing their effort. That's where Guido Van Rossum is focusing his effort. And, you know, to, to say we're all going to stay on Python 2 is, is is really just kind of silly, I think. We just got to kind of suck it up and go. And there have been some interesting watershed moments that have made, like, big step changes in the percentage of adoption of Python 3. Obviously, the wall of superpowers and a lot of the packages there becoming Python 3 supported or even having Python 3 only as an option uh, for some of those is is a big one. Another one that comes to mind is something that Django did. I can't remember when it was. It was like a couple years ago where they switched the default instructions in their getting started docs and tutorials to Python 3. So they just you know said, okay, well, what you do is you start Python 3, you create, do the step, 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 right? That actually made, I was looking for the article and I couldn't find it. I think Donald Stuff wrote an article, but it made something like like a 7% difference or some, some significant difference in the amount of Python 3 uh, deployments just by switching the tutorial and the, the getting started docs to Python 3 as default, which I thought was really, really cool. And so my next item is something from the Django team as well. And this is like that turn to 11 it's one thing to say the default documentation is to be in Python 3. And oh yeah, you can do you can do Python 2 as well if you want. But the next major release of Django, Django 2.0, is dropping support for legacy Python. There will not be support for Python 2 at all. And they're actually cutting out the code to support it. And they've said that that actually makes the code more maintainable, easier to evolve, because there's not like these two worlds they're living in. They're just doing Python 3 and it's, it's going to be great. Yeah, I think that's a good. Actually, I think that's a good call. I'm I, I'm not sure how long they will support the one X branch. They send uh, they the the next release is Django one dot eleven, and that's an LTS long term support release. And they say that's the last one to support Python two seven. And I, they have a um, a support policy for the various versions of LTS versions. And I believe that it's 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 on the the page that we're linking to from the show notes. But I think the statement is like, we're willing to support one month longer than Python, the Python version that we're aiming for. Oh, okay. So there's one LTS that was targeted at Python 3.3, and that drops security fix support in February. It's sometime in 2017. So that's when they're dropping support for that version of LTS Django. Okay. And so there, there is a policy. I don't remember exactly what it is. And it's like, so... This would be something to the effect of 2020, because that's when Python 2 is uh, st- stopping its support and security fixes and so on. Well, that, that totally makes sense. This is good news, though, right? I mean, this is a major, major step in the right direction. Yeah, I think it is. The, some of the code I've seen that try to support both 2 and 3 sometimes just don't make sense. So I think the I think it'll actually help the readability of the Django code. So. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to add a feature, there's less to do. You want to evolve it, there's less to do. It's, it's going to be good news all around. Yeah. Speaking of uh, readability, um, one of the things I came across uh, was I was reading an article. Actually, it was an artic- blog article about requests. And since we've talked about that a lot, I'm 
gonna skip that article. Um, uh, but we all we all love uh, Kenneth, so we know that. Uh, but there was a the article referenced, and it had some code that referenced a package called ATTRS Atters. It's from. Do you want to try to attempt this name? Heinek Shalawak. Very good person in the Python community. He's helped out, um, done quite a bit of good things. But this, um, I hadn't run across this before, and since I come from a, what it is is it's a it's a library that helps you write objects and classes. I guess a more natural way you can have small, uh, tight classes, and it don't doesn't take up a ton of code, and they act normal. Things like um, adding de- um, a whole bunch of, of attributes to a class that have default values. So if if they're if the class is constructed without any any parameters that some of the values just show up already with um, some default values without, um, and you don't have to write all the dunder methods. Since I come from C++ background, I, this seems very natural. And I'm um, like, a, similar to pipenv, I'm just starting to use this, but it's a, it's pretty clean. I wanted to highlight it. Yeah, it's really nice. I've definitely heard people uh, rave about how effective it's been for their projects. A couple of the things that it does, you know, you can easily say class person, colon, you know, dunder init, self dot name, self dot age, whatever, right? And you pass those in, you can store them. That's fine. But then there's a bunch of other stuff that you might need to do. So what if you want a human readable representation? Well, you've got to implement repr and maybe stir as well. If you want to take two of those things and compare them to see if they're they're equal or not, right? By comparing the values. That's another thing you got to write. Well, once you write the, the compares, you also probably need to have a, a not equals. And then you got to do the hashing and you got to do all sorts of, there's just so many different things. You have to have an initializer to set all of them. And all of that stuff is handled by adders, which is pretty slick. Yeah. And it, it also, it does all those methods and it's uh, the, the time cost is at construction time. And so there's runtime, there's not really any your objects are just as fast as not using this. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really, that's really, really cool. Excellent. So speaking of going fast, there's an article that I ran across that is called Go Faster Python. And we all want our Python to go faster. In fact, I think it's, it's really interesting that some of the core developers coming back to Python 3 were talking about well, what is the thing that we could primarily do to like absolutely make people say, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do the extra work to switch my project over to Python 3. And making your code faster was one of the things that they were focused on. Python 3.6 goes a lot faster, uses less memory than, than previously, you know, 3.5 and before that and so on. So people are really interested in making their Python go, code go faster. And so this article is kind of an introduction article. It's not super deep, but it shows you how to do profiling for your Python code and benchmarking and timing and stuff, both for regular Python code and then code that's executing inside Jupyter Notebooks. Oh, wow. So there's like special commands like percent time it that you can run to time a little block of code in a Jupyter Notebook, or you can run time it, you know, directly and things like that. So they also talk about, you know, how do you figure out how long an overall set of code is taken with benchmarking? How do you you know, do function profiling to say which ones you're spending your time in actually. And then you can actually get down to line profiling with an external package called line profiler. And all that is cool. And I, I think, you know, the, the reason I put this in here is I feel like it, it's, it's good to remind ourselves that we should use these tools and we should look at how fast our code runs. It's, it's, not, it's not intuitive sometimes. 
And we always tell, we, uh, a, a regular thing to tell people now is to not do premature optimization, right? Code yes. that looks clean and is easy to maintain. And then after you've got things working, then look at profile it and see where you can speed things up and where things are surprising to you. And that's great advice. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but it's not obvious how to do that. So I, I, I welcome all tutorials like this to, to help people with this. Yeah. And I think the takeaway is it's like a few commands and it's not major, right? You can totally do this. And things like PyCharm have like graphical profilers built into them. So you can, it kind of does the same thing, but like, you know, gives you a slightly different representation. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly worked on projects where I thought, okay, this thing right here, this is the part of my code that is too slow. And thankfully, before I tried to optimize it, I've run a profiler against it and I'm like, wow, that part's actually really fast. <laughs> Good thing I didn't make it unreadable. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely worth measuring before you make changes. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, one of the things that I think is a challenge for us around Python 3 and getting, getting things moved forward in that space, we're going to keep beating that drum for a few years, I suspect. Yes. But, you know, Django, the newest, most awesome version of Django that's coming out is only going to support Python 3. But what if we want to run that on like Red Hat Enterprise Linux or something like this? Yeah, and actually, so that's, somebody contacted us and said he's really grateful for what we're doing here and um, wants to be part of the community, but he feels like we're creating a community that's just Python 3, and uh, because he can't, in his environment, use Python 3 yet. And um, yeah, so that's really what we want to highlight right now is just to say that we know that some people, it's not it's not their choice to, to run Python 3. They, they, ha they have to run 2.7 right now because of their environment. I guess I kind of feel like since I'm, I'm somebody that writes tutorials also about uh, Python, I try to focus on, I'm trying to focus on three now, but I think it's similar to the Django uh, model. It's not, I'm, I will try to write, make sure like the book I'm writing, I'm going to try to make sure it runs on 2.7 also. The wanting tutorials by default to show three is to try to encourage people to use three. It's not up to people sometimes. So I'm hoping that everybody, like the people at Red Hat and everywhere else that does a distribution, will try to give those choices to users and ship with both of them at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. At least have, you know, Python 3 as not the main option, but as an option, right? Yeah. And I know there's 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 uh, tutorials out there to try how, on how you can get 3 running on some of these environments. And I would just hope that people that the right people, the sysadmins or whoever's in charge of what the development environments are um, to try to get that figured out and so that some of the projects can be on three also. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, great message. And the, the more that we can at least move those things forward. I mean, I hear a lot of from people like, hey, we just finished upgrading from 2.6 to 2.7, right? What is this Python 3 business you're, you're talking about? Yeah. So, yeah, like more options, definitely, definitely better. And uh, I don't think that we've really covered that much stuff in, in this uh, podcast so far um, in all of our episodes that really is three only. We have covered it a lot, but a lot of the things like the, for instance, the ATTRS, the adders, that's two seven. Yep, absolutely. So the next thing I'm going to talk about, I think actually is Python 3 only. Yeah, it is. Okay. So it, it's pretty cool. Now, this is a, a project that you can take and you can make part of your smart home, or you can actually make it the hub of your smart home. So we're all getting 
more devices that are are living in our house. We can, you know, we maybe have a Nest or maybe we have some Arduino or we have a Chromecast or, you know, things like that, right? Well, there's this place at home-assistant.io and what this is, is this is a web application that you can run and it will written in Python 3, and it will let you track and control all of your devices and home automation. That's neat. Isn't that cool? So instead of saying like, well, the way I work with my home automation is I open up like um, my my iPhone and in there I've got my home kit or whatever that thing is called. I don't have a smart home, so I don't really mess with that. But you know, it, it's got the few things that it can do. Like here's a full on open source Python web app that does all sorts of cool things. So it says you can install it in less than a minute. You can track the state of all of your devices in your house, like so things like smart, uh, smart lights, garage doors, television, cameras, you name it. You control them all from like a mobile-friendly little web app you can do. So you set up automation. So you can do things like have your lights turn on when the sun sets and you're home. Or have them turn on when somebody comes up and it's dark, comes to your house. Or you can have them automatically dim when you start watching a movie on your Chromecast. And all sorts of stuff like that. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, it's like if this, if this, then that, but for your house. Yes, exactly. For all your smart things. And it's written in Python, and that's cool. And you can, you know, to get a sense of what it's like, there's a demo, uh, home-assistant.io slash demo, and you can just go straight there and check it out. And there's, there's some pretty cool stuff you can play with there and get a sense. The other notable thing, well, many notable things here, but one of the things that is notable to me is this is, is based on AIO HTTP. So that's an asynchronous HTTP client server framework in Python. All the cool async IO, the async and await stuff, you can apply that to things like Flask and Pyramid and so on because basically the WSGI um, protocol doesn't really, you know, was built before this concept of asynchrony. This framework is built on top of that. So it's it's an interesting implementation of this modern Python web server framework as well. So... You know, even if you're not interested in like home automation, it's still kind of cool to look through the source code on GitHub for that reason alone. Yeah, definitely. I want to look through this because I, I do see the Arduino's part of it, but I haven't seen so far if you can hook up Raspberry Pi stuff or. I don't know either, but definitely uh, something I'd like to start playing with. It looks cool. Yeah, very neat. So uh, it's open source. You guys can all check it out. All right. Well, that's it for the news this week, Brian. Anything else uh, you, you got going on? You want to chat about? Um, no, I'm just trying to get over this cold. How about you? I was on a mission this weekend. I'm on a mission to get my next course done. So my Python for Entrepreneurs course, I kind of, I've done as much work as I can do on that. I've handed off. It's now in the pipeline to be finished. And so now I'm writing a new course called Consuming Services in Python for like REST services and SOAP services and work with all sorts of data on the wire, basically, from Python. Well, that'll be interesting. Yeah, it's fun. So I worked on that all weekend. And I'm I'm making good progress. Now, didn't you announce like some extra thing that you were you guys were giving away with the last course? Oh yeah, with the Python for Entrepreneurs course. Yeah, yeah we're we're partnering with DigitalOcean and PyCharm, and so everybody who takes the Python for Entrepreneurs course gets fifty dollars of credit for DigitalOcean for new customers, and about something to the effect of twenty five dollars worth of PyCharm licenses. So. It's pretty cool. Like the course costs $59, but you get like $70, $75 worth of stuff for free just by signing up. So it's, cool. it's really cool. I'm super happy to be able to uh, you know, partner with those guys. 
And I, I like that you've you've started to do like a highlight page to highlight projects that people have finished that have gone through the course. Yeah, yeah. So. I added a, yeah. So what I want to do is like all the students that are taking classes with me, I want to make sure that if they build something they're proud of, they can share it with other people and, and let everyone know. So I think it's training.talkpython.fm slash showcase. And people are starting, I got a few more submissions now, starting to submit things and I got to get them entered there. So people are creating their websites or their businesses or just open source projects and those will be featured there. And if anybody's curious, this wasn't a canned plug. I'm actually just interested in what Michael's up to. So, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's, It's cool stuff. It's really fun to be working on this. You know, it's like, you know, my life is a dream. I get to, I get to work on all these things all day long. It's fabulous. Awesome. Well, I enjoyed uh, talking with you again this week. Yeah, as always. And we will be back next week with another round of Python goodness for everyone. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye, Brian. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.